Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Matthews, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and 36 through 43. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sows good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. And his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them in the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Romans. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you backwards into fear, but you received a spirit that shows that God adopted you as children. With this spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, if we really suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. I believe the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's own sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it. But in the hope that in creation itself, 
will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. We know the whole creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains up until now. And it's not only the creation. We ourselves who have the Spirit as the first crop of the harvest also groan inside as we wait to be adopted and for our bodies to be set free. We are saved in hope. If we see what we hope for, that isn't hope. Who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for that with patience. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. The bearded darnel is a wicked weed. It's a real devil for every farmer everywhere, but particularly in the Middle East. Darnell flatly defies Emerson's claim that a weed is just a plant whose virtues have yet to be discovered. Known in biblical terms as tares, bearded darnel has no virtues. Its thirsty roots go down and surround the roots of the plants alongside it, sucking up all the valuable nutrients and all the scarce water, making it all but impossible to pull out without damaging the good crop. Above ground, it looks almost identical to wheat until it bears seeds. And those seeds are capable of causing symptoms like nausea and hallucinations and even death in humans. So it's no wonder then that Jesus uses this noxious weed to illustrate evil incarnate. Bearded Narnal, also known as false wheat, as tares, is the agricultural equivalent of the ravenous wolves that are out in the world ready to gobble you up. Those in sheep's clothing who look one way but act another. It's a real and present danger that Jesus has already warned us of. More importantly, Jesus says this evil is intentional. It has a purpose. And unlike the preceding story from last week's gospel lesson, the parable of the sower. This is not a parable of good fortune and abundance of happenstance, of healthy seed just falling into ordinary soil. Here the enemy purposely sows cheat seeds in a field of good wheat. And so we have it. Here we have good and evil side by side in the same field, wheat and weeds coexisting without any checks and balances, without any staunch criteria for refereeing what is proper and what is improper, what the qualifications for true seed and true wheat really are. There are no data points to confirm our suspicions. Perhaps it points to one of the most enduring issues of our day and our life of faith, it's where does evil come from? It's as simple as, is it all as simple as just assigning it to an enemy, to an alternate being? Is evil as easily identified as we think? I don't believe there's a person here this morning who doesn't know what Jesus is referring to. Sometimes our lives resemble the good soil and the good seed while at other times our lives mimic the farmer's infested field with weeds and wheat intermingled in our hearts and minds and souls. 
Paul, the writer of Romans, knows this tendency in us. He says, I do not do what I want, but instead I do what I do not want. So our minds try to make sense of the world in which we live, and we fall into the clever trap of binary thinking, of thinking the world is divided into good and bad, good seed and bad seed, black and white, healthy and harmful, becomes our organizing principle. Mark Twain is widely believed to have said there are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to accomplish things. The first group is less crowded. An observant James Thorpe once said, the world is divided into two kinds of people, those who love to talk and those who listen. Which group do you think I might be part of? I like this from Joy Mills. There are two kinds of people in the world, the givers and the takers. The givers eat well. I mean, the takers eat well. The givers sleep well at night. And of course, dear old Abby weighed in on this. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who walk into a room and say, there you are. And those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And finally, we have humorous Robert Benchley's Law of Distinction. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who believe there are two kinds of people in the world and those who don't. The ambiguity helps us enlarge our sense of what Jesus was pointing us toward. How to encompass the vagaries and uncertainties in a complex world. In today's gospel, it looks like we're dealing with people who believe there are two kinds of people in the world. The wheat and the weeds. The good and the bad, the righteous and the evil. And these people who believe in two kinds of people also believe with all their hearts that not only are they themselves the wheat, they know who the weeds might happen to be. They know who the righteous ones are and they are perfectly willing to assign who the weeds are. They know the bad people. They're deep questions that Mark raises, Matthew raises for us. Our first step is to just acknowledge these difficulties the parable seems to raise. The second is to just live in the tension between being weeds and wheat, to resist any definitive test to resolve the practical dilemmas that plague our modern lives and test our ethics by assigning us permanently to one group or the other. We face an endless series of equal dilemmas, if not with weed and weeds, then with choices like, well, do I take the better job, the more demanding job, or do I decide to scale back and spend more time living and working with those people that I hold most dear, my family members? Do I continue to support someone on my team at work who struggles constantly, is a great person, but is constantly affecting the performance of the team or do I help this person move on and find another job? Do I choose the best school, the best graduate program, the most expensive, or do I scale back and choose a program that's excellent and closer to home? Which of the two treatment options do I pursue? The one that's risky and venturesome and unknown, or do I choose the one that's held closer to home that works, but is not, well, it's not the latest and the greatest. Do I just stay in my most 
comfortable job in the place where I am? Or do I move on to new and better pastors? Do I give in to peer pressure just because it, it hurts to be left out of the group? Or do I choose to my values and risk being isolated? We're really good at judging what is good and what is not with that painless phrase, the Bible says. But is that the problem with evil and sin? It's all, it all looks so very normal. It's all so close to what seems honest, so close to what we imagine the good should be. So Matthew's parable is really a warning to us for fear that we think that we have it all figured out how to judge evil from good, moral from immoral, right from wrong, worthy from unworthy. Jesus cautions us to think again. According to whom? At what point in time? By what context? By what standards? This is our human condition, I think. Our weakness for verdict and disapproval, for declaring the future of those we deem to be somehow inadequate in life and faith in sport, in work, and just being a citizen or a neighbor. For assuming evil in another as though, our own as though our own actions were beyond any accusation. The parable helps us all stop short. Really? Jesus asks. Who do you think you are? Do you think you are God? Do you? Many do. We all do a lot. Recently... Recently, a tweet came across my feed that caught me up short. It said simply, when they discover the center of the universe, a lot of people will be disappointed that they are not it. <laughs> when we start going down the road of making our own lot in life by electing what is good and evil, we may well discover that others will make similar accusations about us. Byron Stevenson is a civil rights attorney and an author. And his best-selling book, Just Mercy, is our July best First Pres read book. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, a group that got its start defending vulnerable men who were stuck on Alabama's death row without any legal representation. The group expanded gradually over time trying to stop the unjust execution of men and women and children simply because they were people of color, they were poor, they were uneducated, they were handicapped, mentally ill. And so they began to fight too for children who were incarcerated for life for what might have been a modest crime. And they began to fight for those who were wrongfully convicted or unjustly sentenced. Our society has, over a long span of time, simply hurled rocks and mud and bricks against people who are vulnerable, so much so that there's no light, no hope, and no possible way out for so many people. And this is, as Stevenson shows us, one of the greatest tragedies of our time. Toward the end of the book, Stevenson considers his years of work of struggling against inequality and abusive power against poverty and oppression. And he sees something ambiguous about his own life. He says, being so close to death and suffering 
to execution and cruel punishment didn't just illuminate the brokenness in others. In a moment of anguish and heartbreak, it also exposed my own brokenness. You cannot effectively fight abusive power or poverty and not be broken by it. Stevenson, the activist, goes on to admit that we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and been hurt in return. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is unequivalent one with another. He's driven by an insight by the Christian mystic Thomas Merton, who wrote that we are all bodies of broken bones. From this, Stevenson builds for us a modern Christian identity that being broken is what makes us most tangibly human. Our brokenness is the source of our common humanity, the basis of our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing, our shared vulnerability and imperfection, nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion and for reaching beyond ourselves for something more worthy than the kind of selfishness that Paul warns against. The parable of the wheat and the weeds is really a picture of a reality that we'd rather ignore or simply pass off as today's fake news. Maybe it's even a description of a God in whom we'd rather not believe. Why won't God just do something about the enemy? Why won't God do that now? And what good is God good for anyway if God can't just flatly eradicate evil? The parable of the wheat and tares is not told to us for the sake of action, but for the sake of honesty. Our presence in the world as followers of Christ is not about a full-blown plan to rid the world of evil at every turn and at every moment in our lives. And so it is with Merton and Stevenson and, and following the way of Jesus the Christ who from more than two centuries ago speaks into our world today. I believe we have a choice about the stance that we take in the world today. And with each of these different voices and with countless other mystics and scholars and teachers and just people like us trying to find our way of faith in the world, I believe that each one of us is more than the worst thing that we have ever done. This shows that even in our weakness, we have the capacity for something extraordinary to influence and shape the people of the world around us to change the shape of the world toward mercy and toward justice. Stevenson notes that my work with the poor and incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice, and that the true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. When he was seeking release of a man who was wrongfully convicted of murder and who spent countless years on death row in Angola, Louisiana's infamous prison. Aaron Stevenson met an older African-American woman who was just sitting in court. She embraced him. She took his hands into her hands and began to rub them. 
She gave him a whole new identity in addition to being an activist and an attorney. She dubbed him a stone catcher. In addition, she gave him a whole new perspective. She said, you see, my grandson, the boy that I love more than anything in life itself, was murdered. And I came to court and watched the whole proceedings. And I watched as his young killer's boys, just barely out of elementary school, were sent to prison for the rest of their lives. That did not, however, give her any sense of vindication. It only made her sadder. In response, she felt called to spend her days in the courthouse, listening to those people with no one to hear their stories. No one, the moms and the dads, the grandmothers and the grandfathers, the children and aunts and uncles. She was there because they were caught in the web of violence, of crime and desperation and hopelessness. And she was there to hold them up when they could no longer stand. She was there to catch the stones cast at those who were loved by God. A stone catcher. Someone who catches the stones thrown by the merciless. Someone who catches the stones thrown by the unjust. Someone who catches the bricks thrown by those in power simply because they can. What an amazing and powerful image this is for us today. Christ was a stone catcher. He listened to the widow. He accepted the prodigal child. He accepted us. He forgave the unforgivable. He sat among the fallen. He cautioned against judging the differences between the wheat and the weeds. He urged patience instead of rash retaliation. He saw and he heard and he healed. He imagined everyone being a part of the kingdom of mercy and of grace. He caught stones intended for the vulnerable. If our calling in the world as disciples is to seek out and to eliminate sin and evil, then honestly, I don't want that job. I don't trust myself. But I too trust the God who has given us grace in Jesus Christ to lead us and me toward what is good and faithful and holy in the world. For our calling is to bring life to the kingdom that emerges here around table and font in a community of God's people being shaped by the image of the cross. Our calling is to be light. Our calling is to live the gospel of hope, to be salt, to catch stones. We are God's people, Jesus says, and we are called to be the good news. This parable simply calls us to be, to be honest in the world today, to be the good in the world with the full awareness of what the resistance, opposition, and criticism will be, to be light when darkness will surely try to snuff us out, to be salt when blandness and conformity and accountability are always the easier paths. Catch or throw, throw or catch, light or darkness. The choice is before us this day. Amen and amen. Who is like you, God, who gives us infants and grandmothers, sisters and brothers, different races and different creeds? You came into our world with parables and simple truths. You opened our ears so we could listen to words of joy and comfort. 
Grounded in that hope no one can see, you opened our eyes so we can glimpse your kingdom, but also to touch and see and taste it. You suffered on the cross to break the hold sin and death have on us. So by the grace of your resurrection, we welcome your sisters and brothers, joint heirs of God's constant grace. God, our gardener, you plant the seeds that become the grain, which is turned into bread. You warm the vines that nurture the grapes, which are for the cup. You transform these simple gifts into a meal set at your table. May the broken bread give us strength so that we may go to serve the vulnerable with our whole hearts. May the cup offered to us open our ears so we may listen to the oppressed with attention focused only on them. Then when all creation is gathered up at the end and all your children from every age and place gather around the table, prepared from your hope, we will spend all eternity forever praising you. God and community, holy and one, as we offer the prayer our Lord gave us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.